Chapter 14 of Women, Children, Love, and Marriage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Women, Children, Love, and Marriage by Catherine Gasquin Hartley. Section 9 of Children New Ways of Teaching Children. Unbounded Freedom and Some Drawbacks. I remember once seeing in Punch a picture that has retained in my memory the vividness of the first impression. It is a long time ago, yet I can see it now exactly as I saw it then. A father at a children's Christmas party was personating a bear. Filled with the adult's joy of being allowed to be a child, he was roaring loudly as he crawled upon the floor covered with a woolly hearth rug. So much for the father. Certainly he was enjoying it, but what about the children? What was their view of this performance? They were all looking bored. Even the tiny ones showed no enthusiasm. In the corner of the room, as far withdraw as space permitted, was a group of young schoolboys, very stiffly correct in etons and immense white collars. They were disgusted. One, who had ostentatiously turned his back on the performing father, was plainly angry. Even his back was eloquent of disapproval and gloom surrounded him. His companion, standing next to him, attempted to cheer him up this way. Never mind, Brown Major, you know it's not your fault if your potter is a blooming fool. It is, indeed, a different aspect of the situation. The son ashamed of the father, the young generation condemning the old. It is fitting that we should take notice and remember the lesson that is taught. For this picture of a praising youth carries a very real moral that should be considered by those modern educational enthusiasts, who are always talking about amusing the child, as if that were the one thing which mattered. There is no subject, I believe, on which greater nonsense is talked than on this one of interesting children. Personally, I am skeptical whether children are ever greatly interested in the entertainments that the adult provides for their amusement. What they find interesting are the things they provide for themselves. That is one reason why there must be so great an element of falsity in modern educational theories, which aim at making lessons so interesting that they become like play. It cannot be done. Much of this kind of talk sounds admirable from the point of view of the adult, but what I always want to know is the view taken by the child, by the boy or girl. I do not think they are quite so fond of being amused as we are apt to believe, nor do I think they can be, or indeed ought to be, interested, which is the same really as being amused, to adult orders. I mean that to be truly effective and liberating to the child, this interest must be dependent on what he has to do for himself. The work cannot be done for him. That is why I am afraid of the incursion onto the schoolroom of the too anxious and amusement-providing spirit of the home. It causes too much indirect interference. It supplies too many appliances. It is overcopied with arrangements and the smoothing away of difficulties. In a word, it does not leave the child sufficiently to himself to learn his own lessons, to satisfy his own needs in his own way. It proposes, of course, to do this, but it is just here that enormous mistakes occur. I can fancy a group of boys and girls who, if they said what they really felt about their own education and our ceaseless experiments and efforts to make their lessons interesting and more acceptable to them, would pity us fools. The point of view of the child, also of the boy and the girl, but especially, I think, of the boy, is always so utterly different from the point of view of the adult. You see they are judging the situation personally, while we are judging it vicariously and ethically. 
The ever-pressing idea of the educationalists today is to give the child freedom. But what is freedom? That is a question to which we have not yet found an answer. Do we consider sufficiently if what means freedom to us really gives freedom to the young? And a second question, are we not, perhaps, in our nervous over-anxiety, imposing upon them something they do not want? There is a great deal said about self-development and the necessity of the teacher respecting the child's individuality. We are continually hearing of interesting experiments made in free schools and are told of children who, even when quite young, if left to choose their own tasks, will be so interested in writing, in reading, and also in arithmetic that they will not want to give up their work even when school hours are over. Still, I am unconvinced. I would rather have the boy or the girl waiting in eagerness for the bell to ring to free them from the school. We are apt to overestimate our grown-up power. We do this because we like to do it. It flatters adult egotism. We find a delicious sense of power in realizing ourselves in so many new ways as potters to mold the clay of the child's mind. I often feel that we worry about this question of education much more to please ourselves than to help the young. But this continuous occupation with a child is bad for the child, however gratifying it is to ourselves. By the provision of too many appliances and helps to learn, and by continual experiments that are too often changed, we tend to check creative originality, and thereby we destroy the interests we are laboring to stimulate. It is better for the child if we are less occupied with his needs. If we do not provide him with interests, he will find them for himself. In this case, they will mean more to him, do more for him. I dislike exceedingly all contrivances that make things easy. I believe the child dislikes them too. That is one reason why he tires so soon of all the appliances you provide. They do not stimulate interest and effort, except quite temporarily. Indeed, they destroy both. This applies to children's play quite as much as to their schoolwork. Most children today are given too many and too elaborate toys. Perhaps nothing is more mentally destructive. The child will invent his own amusements. He wants to fight giant lampposts and go to sea in an inverted table. To fasten his imagination to your adult suggestions is to destroy his vigor. Know then this truth. You can teach the child lessons, and you can discipline him by your grown-up authority. But you cannot, by your ready-made devices, successfully interest him or give him freedom. That he must find for himself. He cannot develop fully and be reliant unless by himself. And very often, against your will, he travels on his own road. There is the very greatest delusion about this idea of freedom in the schoolroom. And it is open to question whether the children in the free school, left mainly to choose their own tasks and take their own time in performing them, are really freer, in any true sense, than the disciplined and directed children in the master-ruled schools who have, in my experience, much better opportunities in the out-of-school hours of developing personality. The discipline of the school does help them by giving them more rest. I think they are less influenced by their teacher, for always there is, and must be, Whatever the educational plan, and however free from apparent compulsions, behind the pupil the will of the teacher indirectly, if not directly, guiding. And I am not sure if this indirect coercion of suggestion is not worse, from the point of view of the child, than the old-fashioned methods of direct command. I will even go further and state my belief that its claims are heavier, and bind the boy or girl more permanently in the prison of obedience. For one thing, such indirect coercion does close for the pupils the splendid liberating door of being rebellious. I can still remember the excitement and real health-giving joy I obtained when, as a child, 
I once outwitted my instructor and escaped from my lessons, which I heartily detested, to go to a fair we had all been forbidden to visit. There was a glorious fat woman, and a man who swallowed swords. Wonderful. And there was a delicious suite in a long roll of twisted pink and white, with inside a picture of Roger the Clement. It was the time of the Tickborn trial. If you could find one tiny piece of the suite without the picture, a whole immense bar, much bigger than those which were ordinarily sold, was to be forfeited and given to you for free. Think of it, the possibility, the excitement. Every penny I had was spent, and it was worth it. Yes, a thousand times worth it. Of course, what I did brought punishment, for I had to confess my misdeeds. Those sweets made me very sick. What did that matter? I did gain the joy and liberty I was seeking. This was one of the really educating experiences of my childhood. Seriously, I am deeply afraid that today, in our very eagerness to help children, we may often be acting in an exactly opposite direction as a hindrance to their self-development and future happiness. I believe we are trying to achieve something that is impossible. One thing I am certain we ought to accept. It is the inescapable barrier between the generations, between the parents and the children, the teachers and the pupils. The young ought to be separated from the old. I think this biological fact is forgotten by many advocates of freedom and new ideals in education. I believe also that the young want, and by want I mean both desire and need, the direction of the old. They want the authority that marks the division between the two generations, for this opens up opportunities to rebel. Instinctively, they know they can feel more liberty under authority than when left with the pressing burden, often too heavy for their young inexperience, of deciding at school, as well as at home, almost everything for themselves. Nor do I very much believe in the overworrying conscientiousness of the modern teachers. Again, I must insist upon this. The increasing preoccupation with the child, the constant trying of different educational experiments, is almost certain to exercise an adverse influence. There may be a tyranny of solicitude and kindness that is harder to bear than scoldings and punishments. To me there is something mournful in this chorus of uncertainty, in which it is not difficult to detect the poverty of our faith. It tells a tale of infirmity both of life and purpose. So small a thing staggers us. We are without confidence in ourselves or in life. Why is this? Do we, I often ask myself, know at all what the child wants to find the freedom that gives liberty to the young soul? the only freedom that matters. How can we give the gifts of life unless we have ourselves firmer confidence? If anything can destroy the soul of a child, it is want of security. Our irresolution is our great danger. That is why so often our efforts are barren. It is a sign of nervous disorder of the soul. We seek to gain from outside things what we should find within ourselves, and the child must suffer. For the child is so helplessly dependent, so inarticulate, so unable to express his own feelings and deeper needs. There is still the most amazing blindness in regard to the effect of adult conduct on the child. I know of one small boy who was taught in a free school, where the idea of authority was held in abhorrence. Yet this boy of eight was found one night sobbing bitterly. His mother questioned him. It appeared he had been idle at school, rude and generally naughty. He had not been scolded and of course not punished, he had been reasoned with and told the foolishness of behaving in this way. Apparently, all ought to have been well. Yet it was just in this reasonable gentleness of his headmaster that his trouble rested. He knew he had been naughty. He wanted the punishment that would have wiped his own consciousness of wrongdoing. He sobbed out his complaint to his mother. 
If only he, his teacher, had punished me or been cross and nasty, I could have forgotten. It would have been all over, but now I keep on thinking about it, and I feel all twisted up inside. Now this young boy understood his own needs much better than did his master, who was making the very common mistake of judging the child by himself. The needs of the child are entirely different from the needs of the adult. The child wants security, he wants firmness, he desires authority, he even wants punishment. Let me tell you another story to help bring home these forgotten truths. This time, it was a little girl of the tender age of six years, who had done wrong, was rude and very unkind to her governess. The occasion was a birthday party. Overexcitement was the outside cause of her bad behavior. No one minded the rude remarks except the child herself. We all, including the insulted governess, understood the reason. Our mistake was, we understood too well. Or rather, we judged from the outside and from our grown-up point of view, forgetting that it was not that of the child. We all tried to comfort the little one's distress, assuring her we understood and knew she did not mean what she had said, in vain. The child would not be comforted. I can never forget the fatalism of her remark. It does not matter that Miss, and all of you forgive me, what matters is that I did it. Again it was the child, not we, the grown-ups, who understood the situation as it really was. And what I want to impress upon you is the suffering unwittingly imposed on both these children. If they had been punished, they would not have felt this paralyzing sense of wrongdoing. A suffering of the soul, fitting perhaps for the adult, but not for the child. With punishment or even with scolding, the penalty would have been paid, and the relief would have been gained of self-forgiveness, a relief so much more necessary to happiness than the forgiveness of others. Of course, it may be argued that morally such self-accusation which does follow from this method of adult forgiveness, with its sentimental treatment of wrongdoing, is good for children. I do not think so. Certainly it makes some suffer, suffer intolerably and to an extent that few adults are sufficiently discerning to realize. But the burden placed on the untried, unhardened, and sensitive child soul is, I am certain, too heavy for them to bear safely at this stage of their psychic growth. Punishment would, in almost all cases, be far easier and more acceptable. It would also be far healthier. There is always the gravest danger in placing the immature child in any position that forces an emotional response in advance of the stage of development which has been reached. We have to see these problems as the child feels them, not as we think about them with our grown-up experience and adult deadness. End of chapter 14